suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Despite the reputation of their homeland, some are remarkably thin-skinned. Some seem to have multiple lifespans. A few were once thought to be extinct in the region. Others have been observed being sacrificed by their own. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch question and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello and welcome, dear listener. The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, and uh, we're here to talk about news and politics, sex and religion. Three white guys... Middle class, upper middle class potentially, are going to solve all the problems of the world, which is going to infuriate um, at least half the population, possibly even more. So I'm Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. With me as always, Joe the Tech Guy. Evening all. And special guest, Paul from Canberra, who's joined us and is going to um, take me on on a few issues. Welcome aboard, Paul. <laughs> Glad to be here. Thank you. Yes. So Paul's been on the podcast uh, once or twice before. I think when we had sort of an open mic and he came on and uh, another time as well. So you might recall, dear listener, um, a few weeks ago I mentioned about um, Uluru's statement or just uh, a voice to parliament and I thought that was going to be quite tricky for Labor to pull off and would cause them to lose votes and how I personally have an issue with it. Um and Paul is going to um, sort of um, argue a bit of that point with me, which will be good. And also we're going to talk about the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia as well. I mean, that's another point of contention. And before we get to all that, though, we'll run through a few other topics. As I said to Paul, well, we'll let him warm up a bit on some easy ones. <laughs> so so we'll run through some. i to ease myself into this. Yeah. Joe, we had problems with the tech stuff with the chat room, but now it's working. Is that right? Is it all good? Uh, it looks like it is. It just said it hadn't said my evening all to everybody, so right. I'm just okay. looking at that. Well, Landon Harbottom's there, Bronwyn's there. Yep. So, oh, look, they're the two most important people in the chat room, I would have thought. So if they've made it, that'll do. <laughs> good to see you guys there. So, um, so first off, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the census and – I did uh, download some of the data and play around with it in a spreadsheet and um, it was really interesting because you could break down the data quite easily into state uh, electoral zones. And I think this is going to be particularly useful for our um, religious instruction campaign that we need to run in the run-up to the next state election in Queensland. So we're able to, for example, look at different... Um, state electorates, for example, I'm in the um, electorate of Cooper, currently held by John D. Bush, and the non-religious vote in uh, that electorate, 48%, the Christian vote, 44%. So I think it's going to be really good ammunition to go to a number of these candidates and or existing members and say, hey, you in the federal election lost a lot of votes to the Greens and that looks like it's going to repeat itself in the state 
arena, because it already has at the previous election, and you need uh, to worry about the Greens and look at your particular electorate, it's majority, you know, the biggest group is non-religious. We've got these religious instruction lessons and um, we want you to come on board and, and come out uh, in favour of abolishing religious instruction. Um, it, you know, all, I think it was um, maybe Paul Keating who said, you know, uh, just always rely on politicians' self-interest if you want to get something done. <laughs> I would have thought this is a good example where we should make advantage or take advantage of where self-interest might help us out. What do you think as a theory, Paul? Does it make sense? I think you're right, but I think the what's going to count more is all those people writing to their member and saying, hey, you know, I'm an atheist and I'm unhappy with this or I'm just, I just don't go to church. Mm. And I'm unhappy with this, you know, religious, um, you know, the chaplains only being religious. And the only way you can become a chaplain is by being certified by a religious body. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's good if you're like, yes, good. The rational association or the rational society um, should should do that and approach members, but. Politicians are also going to look at, like, if you get three, you know, I've heard, um, I think someone, you know, politician here in Canberra said, you know, if they get three letters that are on the same theme, then it's serious because they know that, like, that re represents mm. 300 people, yes. you know, out in the electorate and probably 3,000 people will think that when mm. you tell them, hey, this is what we're doing. Mm. For those who have just joined, uh, Paul is uh, with us, not the old Paul, the new Paul, Paul from Canberra and uh, uh, an avid listener and he's going to take me up on some issues later on. Uh, there you go, John, that's who Paul is. Um, I was speaking to Deet Throat, um, who was heavily involved as uh, Vice President of, of this sort of Dying with Dignity in Queensland and talking to him about well, their campaign and he said that a key thing that they did was actually visit and talk directly to uh, the politicians so they would make appointments. And so they would contact members of Dying With Dignity in the different electorates and say, hey, are you available to come to a meeting with your MP? And sometimes they're a little bit scared, a little bit worried about going. So Craig would offer to accompany a group of voters in a particular electorate and he would then kick off the meeting with a few stats and figures and then people would warm up to the whole idea and off they'd go with their personal stories about relatives who'd had a tough death and whatever and, and really engage with the politician. And, um, hmm. yep. and he thought that was particularly valuable and I think that's what we need to do in Queensland is is actually organised for people to sit down and visit with their MP. Like if you are in their electorate, you can make an appointment and say, I'm in your electorate. I want a meeting. I want to talk about an issue and um, and I want to bring somebody with me uh, if you need help. So, Yeah, absolutely. And especially uh, to that point, I think the fact that like – 
a lot of people, I mean, I'm feeling this myself here. Um, I don't have all the facts and figures. Hmm. Having someone that can come in and say, okay, you know, the answer to that question, we know from blah that, you know, the number of people, the percentage of people that are actually wanting, you know, dying with dignity is this many. Hmm. And it takes the pressure off the individual people, mm. but they're still they can still tell their personal story, and that's just as valuable, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, the, the people just don't want to be pinned on. Well, we've got you know two thousand people who don't want this, so what are you going to do about that? Mm. So, dear listener, if you're listening to this podcast and you are in Queensland, I I want you to commit to meeting with your state member and talking about religious instruction lessons. And um, email us here, we'll reach out and tell us what electorate you're in and we'll try, if you like, to gather some other people who might be in the electorate with you and you can go as a little group and if you want somebody to help and go with you uh, to sort of help kick off the meeting and have some facts and figures, we'll supply somebody and... um, and let's just try and get half a dozen of these things going and see what happens. And then we'll we'll go from there and, and see what response we had and work from there. So, so, yeah, if you're in Queensland and you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know how important it is. You know how much blood, sweat and tears has gone into this. And we really do have the chance to um, push for something at this point in time. So particularly... Mm. Um, I looked through as the, uh, the, the electorates with the highest non-religious count or percentage, and they are South Brisbane, Ninderry, McConnell, Noosa, Barron River, Morrowfield, Cooper, Nicklin, Maywar, and Kerwongbar. So, There's the Satanists in there again. Uh, <laughs> for I, I, Noosa. I, yes, there would be um, at Noosa. But, um, so the really interesting one, dear listener, this is the really interesting one, is McConnell, held by Grace Grace, State Education Minister, who has refused to do anything about getting rid of religious instruction lessons. And in her electorate, 49% non-religious and only 32% Christian. It's a, it's, it's a huge gap. Mm. And she is really under threat from the Greens, like at the last election uh, she nearly lost out to the Greens. It was close. And um, she should be extremely worried. So in particular, if you are in the electorate of um, of McConnell... Um, but, but Jesus will win the election for her. Oh, you know, you know she doesn't think did that. He, did, it do it, did he do it for her last time? Yeah. She, she <laughs> yeah, doesn't. Maybe. You know, the thing is, she. I don't think she is into the whole God will save me stuff. She just doesn't want to fight with the Christian lobby, she wants to avoid fights unless she really needs to be in one. Well, they've reached the point where they need to be in one, I think. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's an ideal time. And vice versa. Mm. If she can go back to the ACL and say, well, I'm sorry, but I've got, you know, half a dozen people that literally had a meeting with me, mm. wanted to have a meeting with and you know, complained about chaplains, Hmm. you know, um, I can't just go and 
do what you want. Um, I don't know if you've followed the Senate um, battle in Canberra. Mm, oh, with the rugby union player ended up getting yes. through? Yeah. So David Pocock mm. got in. What the, the significant thing there is that he overthrew Zed Seselja, who's been a hard right liberal who has consistently voted against the will of the Australia, sorry, the, the ACT mm. uh, for you know, Canberra. Like, you know, there's a lot of support for um, voluntary assisted dying here, and he has consistently voted against it. Um, and the fact that we don't have him anymore is, you know, there's a lot of people here that are pretty happy with that. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot more. It's a lot more likely. So I was going to sort of ask, throw this back to you a little bit, and say one of the, yeah, it's okay, maybe going to Grace Grace, and saying, you know, if you don't do this, we won't vote for you. She may just already say, well, okay, you're not going to vote for me, whatever. Well, it's going to be what more than that. What do then? It's going to be more than that. It's we're going to com- campaign in your electorate with letter drops leaflet drops, we're going to stand at shopping centres and tell people what's going on. So, and we're going to say that yeah. Grace Grace is a, is, is supporting. Refusing. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. we only need you. to sway a few thousand votes. It's not many. So, yeah. Good um, and, you know, there's a bunch of other uh, electorates where the, where the members will be feeling the heat. And... You know, even in the electorates where it's a fairly safe and conservative Christian majority, some of those uh, electorates, the sitting member may not want to be openly in favour of getting religious instruction, but but might want to understand they need to keep the numbers in the parliament and go, you know what, personally I don't really care and I need, you know, they might well vote for it or be in favour of the proposal without being particularly... Um, public or vocal about it because they might just recognise that they need to keep their numbers. Because the latest mm. poll numbers in the Courier-Mail was uh, suggesting that the government is now on 50-50. It would be a hung parliament if there was a vote today. So, um, so it's just a good moment in time where they will feel the pressure finally and things have added up uh, in that regard. So if you are, dear listener, a, a listener to this podcast and you're in Queensland no excuse. Shoot me an email. Tell me what electorate you're in. We'll be in touch. We'll try and organise some people. If you if you want a chaperone to be with you, we'll do it. If you just want some fact sheets, we'll do it. Um, we'll talk to you and and just let's try and have half a dozen meetings with different people and see what we get. So, so yeah. So it's interesting running through that census data and seeing what um, what's come out of it and. Um, yeah, I mean, the overall statistic about non-religion in the census was very good from our point of view, but then there's these individual areas where it was particularly good, and that's where we need to finally start throwing some weight around and seeing if we can get some changes in the law. So, um, mm. so yeah. So that's all good. Um, what was I would imagine down in Canberra, you know what the – Local statistics were for non-religious and Christian. I would have thought it's above average that it would be non-religious in Canberra. I'm pretty sure. Um, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. Right, I have to look it up. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So what would the what was the response from the uh, religious groups about the census? And um, this one came from the Catholic Weekly. Uh, the church is no longer the power in the land we once were, Archbishop Coleridge said. Um, it's been clear for some time that the church is no longer the power in the land we once were, but we remain a large minority engaged far and wide in service of the community, including in education, social services, health and aged care. So, in other words, yes, they're a minority, but they have <laughs> influence far in excess of what it should be because they control all of these institutions. Um, like a blood-sucking tick, they've got their head buried in deep <laughs> and they're not going to let go. Well, Tentacles. also, yes. you, you can see that they're really trying to sort of spin it to be anyone with any vague sense of spirituality must be Christian, right? Yes. Mm. yes. Or should be counted as religious. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there was another thing here. With Chris. Uh, National Church Life Survey um, said that while uh, religious affiliation may be falling, the story is more complex. And according to their director, uh, we go wrong if we confuse this identity statement with how religious or spiritual people are. And um, he says that more than half of Australians, 55%, say they believe in God. Six in ten pray or meditate. Two in ten attend religious services at least monthly. He says, we are able to conclude that people who identified as having no religion, religious affiliation still had spiritual or religious lives. And um, he says, oh, conservative lobby group Family Voice claimed the census results were flawed because religion option was voluntary and said that... Um, People should be forced to have a religion. <laughs> forced to make a response. Well, and, and, yeah, so but, so what was it? 4% didn't bother to answer, and even if you gave them the 4%, they still wouldn't be the majority. Yeah, well, Dr David Gruen of the Australian Statistician said 93% of Australians answered the religion question, oh, an increase yeah. from 2021. So 7%, so 7%. Didn't, didn't answer but, it. But I think even given the 7%, they still wouldn't be. Yes, the majority. Yes. Um, so that was that. Um, so that's that on the census. I, I really love that they've said, if you have a census that doesn't mandate the ticking of religion, <laughs> you'll end up with a skewed result. Yes. Because it doesn't reflect faith. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, sure, right. Yep. Well, whilst totally ignoring the fact that lots of people ticked religion because it was the religion they grew up with, not because it's what they believe and practice daily. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Tom, the warehouse guy, says, I remember having an argument with my school preacher during religious instruction about what the census statistics would be in 10 years. And he says, I think I won overwhelmingly. And, um, Sorry, and Alison, Alison, I don't have a subscription yeah, to the Cambridge Times. Okay, <laughs> there we go. Um, uh, and also the other argument Brahman makes is that people who are Hindu or Buddhist are probably not crazy about evangelical Christianity being forced on their kids. So... That's all true as well. So lots of good arguments that we can give to people when they talk to their local member. So, um, And I was going to add there that if you're not in Queensland, mm. find your local rationalist or um, non-faith society and see if you can kind of organise something similar. Yeah. 
Good point. Find your local member. Yeah. If you're in New South I mean, Wales, there's a talk Victorian to Victorian election coming up this year as well. Mm. Well, yes. So Victoria's certainly done it already in terms of religious instruction, but and the chaplaincy issue, I think. I, uh, well, let's talk about chaplaincy. Basically, the new Labor government has said that. Um, they're changing the rules so that you now no longer have to be religious um, in order to be uh, appointed a as a chaplain. But However, all of the providers are, are Christian. Correct. Yeah. So if Labor thinks that solved the problem, they are completely wrong because the system is geared up after all these years to be only done by Christian providers. And uh, or well, then there are some others. Uh, who's the other group? Um, Baha'i are really strong yes. on on religious instruction. Not so sure about chaplains, actually. Um, but yeah, simply changing that rule doesn't solve the problem when all of the providers are Christian. So you know, the answer to it is if you if these kids are needing help from a chaplain because they need counselling, then get proper counsellors who are qualified and put them on the payroll of the state education departments as a proper employee. You know, that, that's the answer. We don't want these volunteers uh, or underpaid, unqualified people roaming the corridors of our schools. So Labor has not fixed it. They probably think they have. So, I mean, the, the Lawrence Krauss quote was brilliant. Mm, what was that? Um, on, on Q&A... He was saying, so these people aren't there to proselytise and they're not there to counsel. He said, so what are they there for? Mm. You, you don't employ clowns and then ask them to not be funny. <laughs> so what he said. Yeah. 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 So uh, Alison says chaplains are not allowed to counsel as that is not their role. Yes. Correct. Sort of and they're not allowed non, to proselytise. Non-religious pastoral So, so what care, are they there for? a shoulder to... Making tea to cry on if something's going Maybe they can on. Help marking the homework. Yeah, yeah. They don't. They do do playground duty apparently. Look, you know. But the thing is, chappies have lots of good reputation and and kudos within schools. Schools love I'm, their I'm sure. chappy. So if, I'm sure they're a helping hand a, on different things. If you had a free volunteer mm. who somebody else is paying for, sure, why not? Mm. It's it's somebody else to. Do playground duty to all, yeah, all the little tasks that you don't want to do anymore. Mm. And I, I think you don't have to like, you don't have to proselytize in order for, you know, a chaplain to say, see someone, a kid who's fallen over or you know is a bit upset, and go to comfort them and talk about the word of God. That's not. You know, that's not a conversion per se, but mm. it is a Christian point of view. It's mm. it is a religious point of view. Um, you know, but there's also um, you that's know, what they're going having, to do. We're having a fun festival this weekend. Come along and join it. Yes, and it's the Easter festival. Yes, and there's the Young Earth Creationists are there. Mm. Yeah, um, <laughs> or whatever it is. It's it's all of these little insidious. Indeed. Just come along to things that are outside of the department's purview. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. 
got this little Christian camp happening on the coast. Yes. Come along. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh, well, um, that's all still to come. Uh, I think you were keen on this one, Joe, the uh, the football coach in America who was um, leading the team in prayer at, at the end of matches mm. and, and half time. Yes. Yeah, so the Supreme Court had come back and said, Oh, he was praying on his own. You know, this this was nothing to do with him leading the school and prayer. And um, yeah, people, are, this is all a beat up. Mm. And um, it was the local press who said, "No, no, no. We had an interview with him before he went and did this, where he was going on about he didn't care. He was proudly going to do it in the middle of the football field, in front of everybody, and he was going to lead students. Mm. And whilst there was no, you must come along." a number of parents said we felt pressure, the kids felt pressure that if they didn't come along and pray with the coach, they would not be yeah. on the team for the next game. Yeah, mm. you'll, you'll be, your absence will be noted. Mm. Exactly. Uh, and and they, it, sorry, yeah, but despite him presenting to the Supreme Court that no, 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 this was purely personal, he had made statements to the press the week before about how he was going to do this and how it was all political and, you know, this was uh, his freedom and his rights and, you know, he was standing up for himself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they've really... The... Go, no, go ahead. No, they've really distorted the facts in this judgment um, where, you know, the judges who are happy to to make sure that this coach had permission to... Um, pray in this public way, really um, described what he was doing as offering offered his prayers quietly while his students were otherwise occupied. But one of the dissenting judges uh, took the unusual but welcome step of exposing this lie by including photos of big groups of players surrounding the coach as he led the team in prayer. And um, so, yeah, just reading on from that article... Uh, not only are these judges now on the Supreme Court happy just to throw away precedent willy-nilly, um, they're also now just giving a distorted version of the facts where necessary to beef up what yeah. they want to say. Their respect for truth in terms of the facts is now uh, in question. Well, so Science Versus was talking about uh, they just did a emergency episode on Roe v. Wade. Mm. and saying that in the judgment there were a number of claims that were not backed up by the best evidence, mm. you know, such as that fetuses at 12 weeks felt pain. Mm. Uh, and, and they were talking about you know, the science of what do we know about fetuses at various ages uh, and saying that effectively some of the statements in the judgment were wrong. Mm. I agree, but I also think, that kind of stuff ends up being irrelevant because to me, you know, sorry, we shouldn't sidetrack this into Roe v. Wade, but to me, ultimately, the um, the whole argument should only boil down to bodily autonomy. No one can take a kidney from you, even if this kidney is needed to save the most important person, even if it's like your own partner, you still can't be forced to give a kidney. Mm. 
You can't even be forced to give a, give a kidney if you're dead. Mm. That's where the bodily autonomy goes. Yes. And the fetus the needs a favour from you until it's yeah, viable. The whole question yeah. of whether it's viable, where it's viable or not, and you know what what it's whether it's ethical. You know, like it is it is my choice to give a kidney or you know to have my yes. appendix removed or something yeah, like that. Yes, but once know. the fetus is viable then the argument is, well, we, your consent is no longer re required in the sense that this baby can now be delivered and, and you are no longer encumbered with this obligation. So so that's why I think the state could say, you know what, once a, once a, a fetus is viable, then... Uh, I will look the, forward to the point at which all of the... Um, there are... Uh, the, so the number of children awaiting adoption mm. is zero mm. so that we can then proceed to take the fetuses of mm. people, you know, women who are raped and bring them to term outside the womb and, and so well, forth. Mm. You know, and sorry, also, this doesn't happen. <laughs> and also uh, that we get... Um, uh, scientifically correct sex ed in school, you know, throughout their the the age of the children, you know, mm -hmm. starting at a very young age, as is done in European countries, that contraception is either free or at least heavily subsidised and is easily available, um, and yeah. that there's that there's a good parental leave, and that there's a suitable. Um, uh, social welfare system that actually means that these parents can afford to have these children. Then we can start talking about whether or not people should be having abortions because until all that happens, you know, uh, you're effectively damning them if they don't have an abortion. Hmm. So, so there you have it, dear listener. Three white men have solved the problem of abortion. <laughs> as we, um, we man's flying our way through that, I hope you enjoyed my, it. My, my point was that the Supreme Court, yes. uh, no matter the arguments, are not above stating whatever evidence they like mm. as truthful as uh, persuaders to their argument, to their judgment. Mm. And I think I think yeah. if we're talking about activist judges, the current mob are activist judges. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yes. and and Trevor's summarised that whole thing. I think in a previous episode, the whole process of um, selecting those judges um, to make sure that only the ones that um, are you know have been correctly indigenous, sorry, religiously indoctrinated, get to be in the Supreme Court, that mm. sort of stuff. Mm. Um, I was just going to reply reply on the sort of back to the coach, sort of praying in front of the students that you know, this is the opt in versus opt out argument. That it is much harder to opt out if some you know someone comes to say. Uh, a football match and says, I'd like to offer a prayer with all of your children. Whereas if you have to, if someone has to say, I need a, you know, a priest to offer a prayer to all of the children, then it's much harder to get that happening. Mm. 
I don't know, I quite followed you there, but, um, the, you know, so pres- the- pressure on sportsmen to be political, these are the last people that we want making political statements really, but um, or, or religious statements for that matter. Like I actually had sympathy for the athletes who are asked to take a knee, for example, um, where a team has decided, oh, we're going to make this statement and we're all going to do this. And I just feel sympathy for the players who say, you know what, I'm just a f- soccer player, football player, like – I'm not elected as an official to represent an ideology of any sort and and to be honest, I don't have the time to study or understand it. I just want to play the sport and that's what I'm here yeah. for. The, the pressure on some of those to join in I think would have been difficult. I'm sympathetic to those who felt pressured in that situation. Yeah, I'm with you but I, I mean... <laughs> All, everyone ends up being involved in politics. You know, you you can't. Um, so let me get this yeah. straight: you've you're sympathetic for the non-Christian who's being peer pressured into the prayer at the halftime or full-time break in America, but you're not sympathetic to well, the guy who's pressured into I, taking a knee in the I, I think, in the I same think, game. I'm, is that I'm, what we're talking? Is that where you're at? I'm sympath. I'm sympathetic to both. Mm-hmm. Where I'm, where I disagree is um, that for a person to say I'm just here to play football and I don't care about any of that politics stuff can ignore the you know as an example can ignore the fact that if you're in the Socceroos, you're paid about 10 times the amount that the Matilda is paid, um, or more than that, I think. Um, and that's a that's a political decision by the organisation you work, work for. Um, well, it's a financial say, decision well, based, I based I on I didn't make that decision. I'm just here to be, you know, to play football and be paid a million bucks for it. Is a convenient excuse, but, in my opinion. And the taking, the taking the knee was a response to them all standing with hand on heart singing the Star Mangled Spanner, yeah. which is an overtly political thing anyway. Yes. So when you open yeah. with an overtly political act and some people say, I want to opt out of that, which yeah. is what taking the knee was, it was opting out of this jingoism. Mm. It was saying that, that this jingoism doesn't represent... Yeah. Uh, a large proportion of yeah. the people I am playing in front of, and, and after a while, it became an opting into a different type of jingoism. Oh, absolutely, yes. yeah. I mean, when it started spreading outside of the US, I agree. Yes, opt in, opt out. <laughs> yes, yes. So, I mean, Israel. Well, you know, okay. I still don't accept your. I don't. I don't get this argument though that a, a, a sporting player cannot just be silent. On an issue like this, I mean, if they want to open their mouth and be a um, a spokesperson on an issue, then they will have to um, take the consequences, good or bad, of that. But if they just want to be a sports person and do kick the ball without offering commentary on ideological stances, uh, 
they should be allowed to, in my view. Um, it feels like we're approaching the territory of critical race the theory early tonight. <laughs> um, sure. I, I, no, I'm, I, I'm with you. Um, the, and because I can see that there's a, a, a difference between taking a stand to say, yep, I'm for racism, uh, and a stand where you say, yep, I'm against racism and just remaining silent and not wanting to, not, not wanting it and to be involved in your and just, sport. And just saying, I'm a dumb footballer who just wants to play football. That's what I'm here for. Come and yeah. watch me play yeah. football. I'm here on that basis. And, or, you know what, maybe I'm extremely intellectual about these issues, but you're going to have to read my essay about it in, in this blog <laughs> post that I've done or this podcast. <laughs> but at this point in time, I'm here to play football. And, and I'm... There's a I'm, time and place for everything. I'm I'm with you, uh, and I would. You could also point to the um, say, you know, that whole problem of um, journal journalists and interviewers sort of finding some um, footballer or tennis player who's just come off a you know, four-hour match and sticking a microphone in front of them and saying, "What do you think of?" You know, how did the other play, person played? And what do you mm. think of so and so not, you know, like um, the Chinese um, tennis player not being able to be here and things like that? It's like, I've just come out of a four, four hour tennis match. <laughs> just leave me alone. Yeah. Um, but we can't, this is sort of one, this is one of my arguments for the, that um, Greg Sheridan article. We can't totally we we can maybe divorce ourselves from the politics in the specific act say of playing soccer we can't divorce ourselves from that context forever at some point we step outside and go back to being people who are involved and you know but but that- we as a society can say you know what we just want our sporting events to be sporting events and our political discussions to be somewhere else. And some of us might say we don't want politics in sport because it's not a good venue. It's not. It's like yeah. conducting debates on Facebook. It's not the place to do it. <laughs> and the people, you know, who, who genetically can run fast and hard without pain are not necessarily genetically the best or have the time to examine our social issues and commentate on them. Like, it just doesn't make sense that these things should go hand in hand where people are forced to make a statement one way or another. I mean, sure, if somebody wants yeah. to run the gauntlet of public opinion and wants to be out there and make a statement, go ahead. And run John the risk. Making, yeah, and John, John in the chat is making the point that, yeah. you know, that in a way we are paying them to play the sport, not... To stand up and give political opinions. Correct. Yeah, that's why they're on the. That's you know, they they just risk losing the money if they yeah. make themselves a bad role model for whatever well, reason. If they all I'm all I'm really getting at in that is 
um, for example, you know, to look at the number of, say, African-American um, men playing NBA basketball, um, it's just an overwhelming number to expect those people to, you know, if if there was a, a group of white supremacists in there in one of the teams yelling out racist insults at another and at a person in the other team, like what happened to Adam Goods, mm. then you that's the point at which you've now involved the politics and the race back into the sport. Um, so to expect those, um, you know, to... It, I don't expect I think, them to remain silent if they don't want to. But, sure. But I, but you're but kind I, of saying you, if you remain and, silent, you're being coerced. Some of those people may be being coerced into being In the silent. same way that the... Footballers are being coerced into saying a prayer with the coach. Like there's a, you know, there's a, yeah. we talk about the peer group pressure there. So, so I've, I've got sympathy for um, the non Christian footballers and I've got sympathy for the non political footballers who just want to play the game and leave politics out of it. Politics is, you know, yeah. is for podcasting. So, <laughs> Touche. <laughs> right. Well, let's let's move into then uh, Uluru statement, shall we? Let's like just jump into it now. We've warmed okay. up. Now we, we're goodness me, it's eight twelve already. Crikey! So, um, so I, I made a comment. Later, I made a comment a couple of weeks ago about um, how Labor had uh, indicated uh, sympathy for the Uluru Statement and we're looking at introducing something, maybe introducing some sort of referendum or, or whatever, and I think I made the point, well, don't agree with it and I don't think it's going to be good in terms of um, trying to sell that to the public at large because uh, I find the whole thing inherently racist, to tell you the truth even though I'll be accused of being racist for holding this view, but we'll get into that. So, um, and you, because uh, we've talked about this in private conversations at different times, critical race theory and whatever, and you feel that that has a place in this whole argument. So, so, uh, so, so um, you want to kick me, off with your yeah, response? So I've called up your the, the article you've quoted from... Greg Sheridan, and the thing, the first thing that I think, the thing that I see all the way through that is the assumption that uh, race should have no part in our politics. Race should not be, um, you know, no race, no social status, no sexuality has favour with God compared with anyone else. Um, and that's a lovely utopia to believe in, but it's not actually true. Our Australian society has inherent racism built in, and whether it's the overt racism of what people call Adam Goods or the covert racism of how we find, or you know, like the 
um, Northern Territories intervention or whatever it's called, um, where they're just jailing Aboriginal people at much higher rates because that apparently solves the problem of crime, mm-hmm. um, it's still a racist society. So so this would be to- where, if I don't know if this is what they've done, but if a, um, if a state introduces a, a new law for jailing people for drunk, public drunkenness and the law on the face of it says nothing about their skin colour, just says anyone who's publicly drunk, we're going to... We've run out of patience. We're going to put you in jail. But if, in fact, it turns out that the vast majority of people who commit that offence are indigenous, then it's a racist result in that sense. Is that what you're getting at there? Yeah. So yeah. that's as that's a, the, that's the a, sort of the in an inadvertently racist outcome from what is a colourblind law, but has a as a racist result. But the racist result can also be that the only people that the police ever charge with public drunkenness are Aboriginal people. Mm. And they might walk past a drunk white guy Mm. in the street and arrest arrest the Aboriginal guy who's, you know, maybe doing exactly the same thing, maybe minding his own business. Yes, it might also be it might also be an indigenous police officer who walks past the white trunk and arrests it, the black it trunk. It may well be, and yeah. you know, I know, um, you know, in is, other contexts, I've seen, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who are of a minority in an, you know in an organisation or in a um, you know in a social context, kind of have to be seen to be scrupulously fair at not favouring their own minority. Mm. But even subconsciously, like there were things in America where they had these like shooting drills where people, police officers, were presented with um, scenarios where, you know, a a pop-up figure would appear and you had to quickly assess whether it was a, a, uh, a foe or friend and... And even the, and what they found was that white officers would more quickly pull the trigger and shoot the, the sort of the the black um, figure, and and but strangely enough, they also found that the black officers did the same thing. So it was yeah, it was yeah. a, a thing that was inherent Again, in both. Because you know, even though there may be no law that mm. says you know, African American mm. men are. Yeah, um, but my point is that was more a re- likely to, yeah. to be criminal. My point is that was a reactionary thing that wasn't thought out. It was a spur of the moment action, like a. a it wasn't sure, a. Oh, I have to think all, of what my superiors will think. On, mm. Yeah, sorry. Um, that's mm. all based on your culture, and if you have grown up yes. as an African American guy, watching all of the bad guys, all of the drug dealers yep. on the cop shows be african-american guys yep. then yeah you're just biased mm-hmm. to you know even though you might then you know, be going in to the police force to try and correct that you've still got that cultural bias yes so yeah so that's that's my first 
problem with the whole reading of this sort of how how lovely it would be if our society wasn't racist and because it's not racist we can't possibly support an indigenous voice but the the second fundamental problem is that the actual form that that voice takes is it has it's not even there's a whole bunch of, of ideas on the table. There's no actual decision at all yet. It mm. is that is like they've deliberately said we are not even deciding this until we get the sign off that at least we can think about it, mm. because we have to then find out what people uh, will, will want. Mm. Um, and yet, you see in this article, as we saw with. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, immediately after, um, in the reaction to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, characterise it as a third voice to Parliament, which is a lie, because mm. that does not exist. Uh, let me read some of the Uluru Statement, not the whole thing, but just going to grab bits from it um, to give people a flavour of what it says. Um, uh our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations to the Australian continent. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. Uh, peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. We see constitutional reforms to empower our people. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. We invite you to walk with us. Kind of the key concepts out of the yep. thing there. So, and, I, and I'm really sorry because I forgot this, but I was going to say greetings from Ngunnawal country. Right. <laughs> Start. <laughs> so, okay, so here's my problem with the Uluru Statement is I think it's um, it emphasises division between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people and difference between the groups. And so I don't like things that divide us and it emphasizes also Australian Aboriginal Islanders tribes were the first and an ownership of the soil and a possession of the land that to me derives from being well we were here first and I think that's oh, a so they're claiming terra nullis uh, what's that yeah. They're claiming terra nullis. Yes, and they're saying, well, we were here first. And my view of uh, land is it's a finite resource and uh, and we're all just here for a brief while. They were able to use it, hopefully, and we're under an obligation to future generations to look after it and hand over something that's not spoiled and is hopefully a little bit better than the way we found it, but at least not worse. 
and and you know I buried my mother a few you know well it's getting on a bit a few weeks ago now mm. and you know she's now in a plot at Gold Coast and and I think to myself at times mum's just here on this planet for a very 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 short time but she's claimed ownership of a of a few square metres of earth hmm. in perpetuity as hers. Yes. And it's a flawed concept to me that you would do that. You, you, no, you don't own it forever. You're just here briefly. It's, it's, it's for others to come along and use and leave in a fair state. So I, I, I don't like this this ownership by anybody of the land that is then passed on. And, and to me, it's kind of like a bit of a, uh, a, a an aristocracy that is somehow leaving land rights to future generations to the exclusion of other generations. I see that as... Yeah. Um, as an inherent problem with so yeah so for me okay. the Uluru statement emphasizes division that there is a difference between indigenous people and non-indigenous people it emphasizes an ownership a right to land that um, arises from a we were here first kind of notion and um, and an ongoing um, an ongoing separation where there's First Nations and there's the government and, uh, yeah. again, divisive. Okay. I think there's a couple of approaches I'd like to take there and kind of like the first one would just be to say, like that last line, we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. To me, that actually says we we are actually wanting to join. We are not wanting to divide. We want you to join with us so we are, all of us, the Australian people. What do you think of that interpretation? Um, you and us to me, is not, is, is, a, is a division. Um, so it's, well. it's an emphasis of a division, particularly when it's preceded by, we seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations. So it's, hmm. it's, it's setting up two different groups it's saying we are a different group. So I, it would be interesting to hear, you know, an actual scholar, you know, an Aboriginal scholar talk about this. But my, um, my, the sense from the discussions that I've heard about this kind of topic is, we already, we already have a division, right? Mm. We whether we you know, class people based on some set of ancestry or what they, whether they tick the Australian Torres Strait Islander box on some survey or anything else, hmm. um, we've, we have a problem in that we are 
already a kind of divided group. Mm. Mm. So to me, the statement acknowledges that we have the division there to begin with. And in some ways, I think you could argue that for a long, you know, in a lot of uh, historical interactions with Aboriginal people, there have been a lot of those that have just been equally um, Aboriginal people working alongside white people, um, European people, uh, you know, welcoming them in, teaching them where to, um, to, to fish and hunt. So I've just spent uh, two weeks down the south coast and at Eden there is the old whaling station. Um, the Aboriginal people there had a relationship with the killer whales the killer, they over, over, you know, a long time, no sort of documented start to this, but over a long time, the two groups had learnt. So the killer whales would isolate a, a whale as they're migrating up the coast. They would drive it into Eden Bay and then they would signal to the Aboriginal people who would come out and swim out, spear the whale the killer whales would eat the lips and the tongue, which are the best parts for them. The Aboriginal people would get the rest. The, the killer whales are marked in white and black, and those were the markings of the, the local people. Um, the Aboriginal people had white, uh, white paint and black skin. And so they saw them, the Aboriginal people saw the killer whales as their ancestors, as their spirits. Um, and to the point where when the um, white whalers came on the scene, the the killer whales learnt, oh, these guys have boats and they have harpoons. They're much better at hunting whales. Mm-hmm. We're going to work with them. So they there's this, you know, passed on um, relationship and knowledge uh, to the point where when a European guy, through a mistake, um, killed one of the killer whales, the policeman there said, you better get out of town because I cannot guarantee your safety because the Aboriginal people will want to come and kill you and I can't stop them. So the, the overall picture that I want to paint here is that, yes, there have been divisions, there's been fights, mostly they have been grossly unequal in favour of the Europeans, but there's also been periods and and incidents of working together. So we have the division and we want to move forward as one Australian people. And to me, that's an overall unifying concept. You you can't, uh, you know, in the same way that I have to talk to you as a separate entity, mm. they're just saying we invite you because that's the language. Yeah, but it also says we see constitutional reforms to empower our people. So Yeah. Because that, that, they they have realized that there is no other way that that we can begin to address the overall system of racism until we have a system something 
in the constitution that can't be removed by a previous, sorry, a, a, a you know, subsequent John Howard-esque government to take away that voice. And, uh, yeah, but and, we do and, it all look, the time where we fix injustice and it stays fixed. Mm, you, yes. you, you had your example How? of you had your example of the um, of the disabled um, hotel or whatever. Is it, what? Yeah, so people might be familiar just for the listeners. Um, there's a meme that went around a little while ago. Um, of imagine a hotel that was built by some guy who hated disabled people and he built it with stairs everywhere and made it difficult and no, you know, all the toilet doors were too small to get a wheelchair through and all that sort of stuff. And even if someone um, bought that hotel and said, we want to make it, uh, we, you know, we, we're not, against disabled people doesn't stop the whole structure, the whole system of the hotel from being anti-disabled people. Mm. So and, I'm not sure we, where you're we, going from that well, context. Well, we, we, we created buildings. I mean, that happened inadvertently or whatever where we created buildings that were uh, inaccessible to disabled people. Yeah. And we said, you know what, that's unfair. We need to... First of all, any new buildings have to have disabled access. And then secondly, we need to implement over time enabling disabled access into buildings. And, and, and we did that. We fixed an injustice without having to have it enshrined in a constitutional change. Like I this- think... A good friend of mine who has multiple sclerosis would mm. violently disagree with you on that that wheelchair access is fixed. Well, well, but, but has it gone backwards? Has it gone? Has it? it has no, it, gone... it hasn't gone backwards, right. but it hasn't been fixed. Right. We are still having to work. Well, okay. On. Well, I'm not suggesting the world's perfect, but yeah. but we don't. There's any number of problems in our society where we don't lock in constitutional. Amendments, because it's also quite dangerous to lock in things like bills of rights that we've spoken about before. So yeah, um, so uh, you know the example. I was reading that example from you um, about that, and I thought, well, what what do we do when we recognise a problem like that? Is we consult with uh, disabled people. And we say, tell us your story. What's wrong? Why doesn't it work? How does it affect you? What would be solutions that you think would fix this problem? And we work with experts of design and building or whatever and and come up with solutions. But we don't create a... a uh, a body of exclusively disabled people who who tell us um, uh, what 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 has to happen because victims are poor. Victims are actually are not necessarily the best people to provide the solutions in all circumstances. So people who are victims 
are not necessarily well-placed to know solutions. They can contribute and they should contribute, but they're not the font of all knowledge. And other opinions expert in other areas are vital for a good solution. So so if we allow victims to to make our laws, like the one-punch law in New South Wales, I mean, there was a family whose son was punched in a nightclub incident at two in the morning. Well, you know, and they argued, well, the solution to that is shuttle nightclubs at at 11 p.m. or whatever it was, you know. Now, a grieving family will come to that solution, but that doesn't mean that was the right solution. And um, so victims are not necessarily... um, well-placed to know solutions. They can describe their their issues, but they but can't would... necessarily provide all of the solutions. And, yeah, okay. And they can't necessarily speak on behalf of other victims. Yeah, that was a, a point I was going to get to. But I, on the other hand, I would say, so, would you say Tony Abbott was a good minister, with, a minister for women? I have no idea. I, I don't know enough about would you yeah. say a woman might do a better job? It, I, I would have thought so. I would have thought we could have found a woman who would have been a better... I, I think um, an onion would have done a better job. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yep. but, but, but just, uh, just, just I like this wheelchair-disabled analogy. I want to run with it a bit more. Sure, just to sure. Okay. try and paint the picture that I'm coming from here. So, because that too is a, an area like I, I, I think I'm following your your point, and I would certainly agree that victims have a very mm. uh, narrow lens that they're seeing things through, and yep. often, um, you know, people are prepared to, you know, want a, a really sort of eye for an eye kind of punishment on some some things, especially. Yes. Um, yes. But where uh, you know the because, because the, the the thing that I'm kind of thinking of with the like the disabled access, mm. um, you know, is um, the sort of two aspects on this. One is the uh, when Abbott came in. Um, they knew they couldn't get rid of the NDIS. What they did was just make sure it was harder than ever and reduced funding. Just keep, do not add any more funds to this thing until it makes it just too difficult. Um, I know a friend of mine um, has multiple sclerosis, has said, you know, it it was just so much harder as... Turnbull and then Morrison got in when it just became increasingly obvious that they were not, you know, they were they were happy to listen to their particular experts, but also the agenda of we're actually we actually really don't care about disabled people and we want to make their lives difficult came through. The other is that um, the big. The analogy I kind of want to draw here is if we, you know, when when those building codes first come through, builders will naturally say, oh, well, this is too difficult to do. Of course they will. Um, and then they'll say, 
uh, we we don't want to have another government body doing this. We only want to have this as a voluntary code. All and progress, all progress is blocked by interests who are against the progress. Of course, sure, of right. course. And that's where I think we have to see the uh, the the opposition to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the opposition to um, consulting with the First Nations people on how they should be treated by our laws. It, it's, um, it's, it's not an opposition that, to consulting. And this is, I'm just going to interrupt here because Broman okay, said sure. in the chat room, when the disabled access provisions of the Australian Building Code were introduced, a consultative committee of people with varying disabilities was set up so that the building code developers were properly informed of the problems and their potential solutions. It turns out that victims are exactly the right people to ask. So I think your theory just fell over, Trevor. <laughs> Brahman, that's exactly what I said. You ask the disabled people, what are the issues? What do you need? What will work mm. well for you? What are the problems? Like, You did say that victims are not a good I, people to ask. No, no, but. I said they're not the people to make the laws. So I said okay. ask these people what their experience is, but you then have to consult with other experts as to as to. Um, the best way of doing things and other uh, aspects of life that need to be taken into consideration beyond the victim's uh, input. For example, yep. you yep. have to say to the fire chiefs, well, if we install some sort of lift mechanism here in this place here, how's that going to affect fire exiting from a building? Right? Yep. So it's, it's about consulting with uh, the victim's taking uh, from them their, uh, their advice about what they see as being the best thing, and they might well turn around and go, you know what, I see your point. If we were to do it that way, it wouldn't work. Okay, we'd have to do it this other way. So, so I think you've misunderstood me, Bronwyn, in that obviously uh, Australian society needs to consult with Indigenous people about how to solve Indigenous problems. Yeah. But the, um, there seems to be a uh, uh, inherent in this discussion about um, from the Uluru Statement is, is, is setting up of a body which will be comprised just of Indigenous people and it having some special powers of some sort. Because what did I say from the statement? It said something like, um, we seek constitutional reforms to empower our people. So they're seeking some sort of reform for some sort of power for some sort of Indigenous people. That's there in the statement. Okay, dear listener, this uh, podcast ended up going for a total of two and a half hours. Can you believe it? So... I've decided I'm going to split it and you'll hear the rest of this podcast next week. Or if you can't wait that long, you go to YouTube and just watch the whole thing. But uh, anyway, in terms of the audio podcast, the rest of it will be next week, 12th of July, which is my uh, wife's birthday. So I'll have the night off and uh, that all works out quite well. Alrighty. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends 
let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.